Hey, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where we talk about everything under the sun. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book where this conversation started, and the author of the newly released Mom's SOS, or Mom's Side of the Story, which you can pick up over on my website, jeanfaulkner.com. Just go check out the shop tab. There's also a super cute little coffee cup that we made for you that we are calling a cup of common sense. We also have a Patreon page and you can find a link to that over on my blog. Just look for Common Sense Pregnancy on Patreon. Well, guess what? I usually ramble on a bit before we get our guest on the line, but today I'm going to cut to the chase. I'm on vacation this week, but I ducked into the studio because I wanted to make sure and get my conversation with this week's guest to you as soon as possible. You're going to love it. Laura Lex is an award-winning comedian and writer. Following a critically acclaimed run of Trying, Laura won Best Performer in the Comedian's Choice Awards and was in the top 10 of Dave's Funniest Joke of the Fringe in 2018. The show also transferred from the Edinburgh Festival for a successful run at London Soho Theatre. Laura's TV credits include Live at the Apollo, BBC at the Edinburgh Festivals, The Comedy Club, uh, and her five-star award-winning show, Trying, is now available to to uh, to stream exclusively on Next Up comedy.com. Trying is Laura's brutally honest account of a year spent trying to get through therapy, trying the patience of everyone, and trying unsuccessfully for a baby. She's challenging stigmas and laughing in the face of things we've been silent about for too long. Laura Lex's touching and ultimately uplifting hour is about admitting that it's okay to not be okay. Let's get Laura on the line. Hey, Laura, it's Jeannie. Hi, how are you? I am doing really well. Laura, first thing I need to let our listeners know is where in the world are you? I'm in Brighton in the UK, just on the south coast. You are very, very far away from me, lady. <laughs> yeah, you're in Portland, right? I'm in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. yeah you get the, well, the two towns get compared quite a lot. I work with a comedian here who's from Portland and uh, Brighton and Bristol, two UK sort of seaside port towns, they get compared with Portland a lot. I don't really understand why. I guess you huh. guys must be a bit hippie-ish as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, we totally are. Yeah, we're all about, you know, artists and coffee and music and food and books and... Yeah, and there's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we have a river that runs through the middle of our city. I mean, it's not a port town. Ta- it, it is a port town, but it's not an ocean. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. yeah. I think water does tend to do that to a, a place, yeah. doesn't it? Like a big I, expanse of water, it's quite hard to feel frenetic next yeah. to some gentle water. <laughs> Yeah. What about weather? Do you get rain? Tons and tons and tons of it? I guess we get more than you, I'd assume. Brighton actually is its own odd little microclimate. The southeast of England tends to be a bit drier than the rest of it Mm -hmm. um, because uh, Brighton's kind of 
surrounded. It's like it's wearing an Elizabethan ruff of hills. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's got what we call the South Downs, which are huge, expansive, um, gentle hills, but uh, decent hills. And they kind of give Brighton a funny little sunny microclimate. So it does tend to be relatively dry and, and warm here, but for UK standards, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You still have a whole lot of gray, funky drizzle to deal with. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And as we get further into our conversation, let's loop back to that and the impact it has <laughs> on how we're feeling. Yeah. Well, Laura, my first hard question then is this. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, I do comedy and writing and... Uh, all sorts of fun things connected to my main core job, which is a stand-up comedian. Uh, who I am is partly comedian, partly all sorts of things. But uh, comedy, I suppose, is most of my world. Yeah. It's a hard question to answer. Yeah. And do you know, funnily enough, I was just listening to a podcast this morning about answering that question, like, uh, what do you do? And if you just say your job, how comfortable does that make you? And is yeah. it really, is it really new agey to be like, I'm a wife and a this <laughs> and a sister and a great aunt. And it was it's sort of an interesting question. I know. I like to answer it. I'm a woman on earth in the 21st century. Yeah. That's the that seems all encompassing. Yeah, I'm tired yeah. is my honest <laughs> I know. And it's funny how people answer that question depending on what part of the world they're in. Because Americans, we always answer with our profession first or our work. We always mm. do that. And I often have to, you know, the more... Um, the more white collar a profession is, the more I have to dig deep with a guest to ask, well, what else do you do? Do you yeah. swim? Do you knit? Do you? <laughs> yeah. You know? Oh, I yeah. Hmm, I, I guess I do. I guess yeah. I sometimes I lie about being a comedian because you just end up having the same conversation. So if I don't feel like having the very predictable conversations, then I will just say I work in retail or something like that. So I'm quite <laughs> comfortable just pretending that I'm not sometimes. It's quite nice. <laughs> have you read the novel um, Eleanor Oliphant is just fine? Yes, I have. Yeah. yeah. She tells people that she works in an office and no one ever asks the next question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I get you it. You can just shut that down and talk about something else. Because otherwise you do, you just... Everybody does it. If you sort of had to list the conversations you have in a week, you go through circuits of it. And sometimes you think, oh, do I really owe another taxi driver this explanation? They don't care. I don't care. Let's just talk about anything else, like yeah. anything else. <laughs> yeah. We all have our strategies. <laughs> yeah. We're yeah. just getting through the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are very funny lady. And I've watched some of your work and we're going to talk more about that. But I'd like to, um, I'd like to hear more sort of about your career path and why comedy and, and I'm, tell me a little bit more about this work you do. So, um, currently I'm a very comfortably happy comedian. I'm sort of a, a very funny person you've never heard of I, is how I sort of explain it to people sometimes. I've had a, a little bit of television exposure um, and a, a lot of online success and I make my career driving around the UK and traveling to Europe 
and a little bit in Asia, but not so much there yet, um, performing in comedy clubs. So anything from uh-huh. 50 to 300 people. Um, and I sort of got into it via university. I wanted to be an actress. Um, and I so I went off and did a drama degree and then got fell in with people that were interested in live comedy and comedy stuff and then ended up studying a lot of comedy stuff for my dissertations in my master's year. And um, I liked the autonomy, I suppose, of stand-up. Like, it's it's beautiful in the UK because you have this messy broken but brilliant circuit of clubs mm-hmm. and if you want to you can just keep on getting booked for years and years and years you might not get paid a lot but you don't have to keep going to auditions and getting told yes you can just work it out slowly mm-hmm. and anonymously and I liked that where it, it seemed to have everything acting didn't in terms of no one was asking me to lose weight or you know come to auditions that didn't come to anything and I just yeah fell into it really and I love it yeah we often fall into the things that we're we're best at it's kind of amazing how that works out yeah because I never I sort of since I when I got interviewed about it and I think why did I think think Like, did I think I was going to do this as a career? And I honestly don't think for at least the first two years I did. Mm -hmm. And then I sort of look back and think, well, why didn't you stop doing it then? Why did you carry on doing it? And And how did you answer it? I think, honestly, it was just that I had a full-time job to pay the bills and to just, you know, that, like, schism bit between whatever you were doing as a teenager and then Mm -hmm. the rest of your life starting, and you suddenly go, oh, life is really long. What am I going to do for it all? And I Mm -hmm. didn't like the full-time job I had and would look at job sites and think, oh, I could go and work in that office. And stand-up was just the most easily grabbable handle to stop that being my unending future, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Good. It, it, it I, I know a young woman here in um, the US who is working her way uh, up in a, in a similar career as yours. She's a com- stand-up comedian and she's, she's getting some level of acclaim. She's doing pretty well. But the thing that is most striking to me is how much of her career is um, handling dudes. And there's such a stark (laughs) divide between comedy that's delivered by women and comedy that's delivered by dudes. And it's a big part of the deal. And I'm wondering if you would comment on that a little bit. And by the way, I have seen your work because I did see that clip of you. (laughs) Was that for real? I mean, there's this incredible clip of Laura. Listeners, you got to go to YouTube and find the clip of Laura taking down a heckler with the most grace I've ever seen. It was a beautiful (laughs) thing to watch. That was for real? Yeah, yeah. The thing that amazes me with that, because that that was, you know, four or five years ago, that clip took off and um, people were, you know, the people commenting on it underneath the internet trolls pop out and go, it's probably her father. She pays him to sit in the audience <laughs> and shout at her. And I just, you know, I didn't engage with any of it, but I, I really wanted to be like, 
babe, are you serious? Like I could record a gig a month where someone shouts this crap at me. Well, I don't need to pay my dad. You losers will do it by yourselves. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. But what's remarkable is that you've then, you know, you get this all the time in your bits, but then you seemed to have just had the perfect answer at the right moment. And you just, it was great. It, it was artistic. It It's, I think what it is, is that I, I love being on stage and I'm quite an anxious sort of nervous person off stage, but on stage, I really don't mind rating myself. I think I'm really good at what I do. And uh-huh. I know that I'm not very sporty and I'm not a lot of things, but what I am is verbose and I am a quick thinker. And so if I've got confidence and my sort of quick thinking skills, you're not going to beat me if you're mm-hmm. a drunken misogynist. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, But I, I think sadly, the reason I'm good at it is that it happens a lot. I get it a lot. Like even this year, walking up to the microphone and before I've even said hello, it's get back in the kitchen and make me a sandwich, love, or someone commenting on my that? hair. Exactly. Exactly. Ah, what year but is this? <laughs> exactly. It's very odd that just the sight of me, I mean, I'm five foot nothing. I'm very smiley. I don't play for power in my dress code or my you know, uh-huh. I don't go for a scary look. Who's that intimidated when I walk out? Who sees me approaching the microphone and unconsciously is so perturbed that they need to try and gain control of the situation immediately? I yeah. That's what I find interesting because I, I don't truly believe that anybody sets out to be, or I think very few people set out to be consciously horrible. I think a lot of it is fears that we either do or don't know we have but they form our actions so who's that scared of me are you scared of women are you scared that if i if people find me funny i'll take your rights away or your job or what do you lose by me being this it's so have you ever gotten an answer to that have you ever gotten a guy to tell you what it is what tell us guys what is it no because the people that would engage with me wouldn't be those guys you know like for every one shouter from an audience there's 200 sitting there going god you're giving us a bad name not all men you know (laughs) that kind of thing so anybody that would engage wouldn't get but I reckon half the blokes that shout stuff must go home and lie there and be going, oh, why did I shout that? What yeah. what dormant Neanderthal <laughs> drive to win did that? Oh. <laughs> it, it's so interesting to me. Well, your um, your one hour special for Next Up Comedy it launched in March, right? <clears throat> yes, it did. Yeah, and it's called Trying, and it, um, it tells the tale of a year you spent trying to get pregnant and getting diagnosed with clinical depression and anxiety, right? Yeah. yeah. So I want to hear about that year and and then and about how you recovered. And then I'm super curious about how you went to turn that year into a comedy special. How did, how did you go from there to here? <laughs> yeah, I have lots so of I... technical questions about your process. <laughs> We're going to get there. I need to know. But, <laughs> but let's talk about the, the special in that year. Yeah, so I, I had I had a terrible couple of years. I basically um 
Came home from the Edinburgh Festival in 2016, having just done a really successful show, had a great time. And my husband and I had sort of chalked on the wall, when we've got that done, we'll start trying for a baby. And uh, I came home having had every single barrier to being that grown up mum person that I sort of thought I'd be removed you know I've I've got the job I've got the house I've got the man I've got the ring let's go and my brain just crumbled and I um what 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 sort of physically happened was I became utterly obsessed with climate change so Mm. I uh thought about it every single waking second it was as all-encompassing as sort of grief you know that Mm. level of obsession with it and trying to squash cyclical thoughts and it developed very slowly so I didn't sort of notice it wasn't like wake up one day and oh I'm obsessed with this it built in and in and this fear and uh and so I spent a good few months processing that by myself and becoming increasingly desolate about how to carry on being alive when everything that made up my former life added to these environmental issues that were terrifying me. Um, so after a little while, I, I got help. I was very lucky. My sister and my husband sort of shoehorned me into a GP surgery and I I got help. I got uh, antidepressants and therapy. And then I went through a, a good year of therapy <clears throat> and drugs. And we got to a point where we'd pulled it apart and yes I was terrified of the environment and that was a very real thing to be afraid of um and the only reason I don't sort of end up smirking at myself and going it's not eco-anxiety is it you're just right Mm -hmm. all these problems are real (laughs) is that my anxiety about it was so crippling that I wasn't even helping the cause like I do now now that I'm still scared of the same things I'm not paralyzed by that fear though I've learned to manage that um so I sort of came to all of that and we went back to trying we sort of realized in the therapy that this fear I had was all based on the try wanting a baby had um kicked it off because I was suddenly faced with this fear that having a kid was very selfish potentially Mm. and especially in in the face of climate change yeah, yeah, like how long was my baby going to get? You know, I have no doubts on myself as a mother. I'll look after that baby very, very well. But when it's 20, is there going to be food? Where? What's going to be flooded by then? What What are we looking at for my mm. baby's 40th? How do I raise that child? You know, this is what you'll do with your life when very realistically we're staring down the barrel of their lives being nothing like ours have been. And I... I was having all sorts of thoughts with that. You know, I I read a lot of historical fiction and I love history and I was sort of reading something about the Wars of the Roses at the time, a big civil war in the UK and and thinking, well, people had babies into that, you know, and they didn't know if they were going to survive the next year and famines and and sort of all of these complex thoughts going around my brain about the morality of creating life and is it better to give someone the chance knowing it won't be easy? Would you prefer life and it be a struggle or not life? I couldn't cope with it. Spin cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, I was exhausted. At the same time, I was trying not to, not to flush the toilet more than once a day, and not turn the lights on, and not use my car. And I was just exhausted, trying to buy food that wasn't in plastic and wasn't flown here. And I was broken. I was absolutely broken. And we we sort of got through all of that, 
got myself to a point where I am a much more rationally environmentally aware person now so I can actually use that fear to help rather than to just sit at home panicking Mm -hmm. and then we sort of got back to trying for a baby and and sort of thought yes this is something we want to do and then we went to two years of uh not being able to conceive (laughs) rendering the whole breakdown pointless what a waste of time uh and so the show developed because I was not thinking about anything else (laughs) I have to write about what I'm thinking about and that understandably was just was everything at the time so two two places i'd like to break off to one is did you um did you go through a series of fertility treatments during those years no we didn't and uh did you decide not to pursue that path we did yes Uh, yeah uh we we had a few preliminary tests to rule out any ill health, you know, just mm-hmm. to check that this wasn't symptomatic of something worse being the case. Yeah. And then I found the health service here to not be particularly friendly um, towards me wanting to explore it. There's a bit of a thing with this women's health of, uh, oh, well, you've only been going two years you can't yeah. have IVF and I was sitting there on the phone going I haven't asked you for IVF I just want to check that my periods are healthy yeah well if you want IVF this and I kind of oh okay and I love the NHS it's not to slate the NHS but it's a lack of funding from our government and and a sort of desperate need from them to break it down so that it can be privatized and it's it's spoiling it but um I I felt like we given the psychological hurdles that we I'd gone through and uh and then the difficulty in conceiving I just felt like do you know what I'm not the person to go through these difficult and traumatic fertility treatments people have often yeah. said to me since like did you not just want to try IVF and I want to whirl round in the, a great lighting state with smoke going do you know what just try it means yeah <laughs> do you it's have any idea a couple aspirin. <laughs> no no it's months of injections and, try. or yeah did you not just want to give it a go oh yeah yeah sure I've got yeah. eight thousand pounds lying around that yeah. I could have just thrown away on another six months of not owning my body and not knowing my mental state and when it all boiled down to it and it got to a point where I was exhausted from trying and I'm so surprised that I found trying for a baby so tiring because I really thought I'm so busy with my career and interested in other things. I never thought I'd be one of those people that was crying every month when they weren't pregnant, but yeah. you just can never underestimate how much your body as a woman is con- is just constantly reacting to where you are in the month yeah. And I just wanted done with it. I just thought, do you know what? There's children out there that need parents mm-hmm. and I'm all, I'm still not sure about creating life. I will find another way to do this. Yeah. There are other options out there. Darn good ones. Yeah. Darn good yeah. ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So let's see. What else do I want to ask you about? Um, well, I want to talk more about I kind of see that oh the other the other thing that I wanted to to kind of unpack there was about I'm really interested in writers' processes. 
of how they get an idea or, or in your case, a joke or routine out of your head and onto the stage. And I know that I know my process of how I do that. Um, but what about you? How do you do it? Well, I started with a lot of writing about the environment for this show. I worked with another comedian who's a great writer and I sort of sat down with him and I said, these are the beginnings that I've got. I need some help to get these from things I'm frightened of to jokes. And so we sat down for hours and we just wrote and wrote and wrote on deforestation and on plastic and on carbon and on the hypocrisy of modern life and on the reality of trying to be a good person and in terms of environmental effect while still engaging with what modern life is. And we wrote and wrote and wrote on all of those subjects. Okay, um, technical question. You're literally just facing the computer screen and just writing it out? You just go straight for that? Yes. Yeah. So with him, Brave. what we did there was I came in with a notebook of stuff and I was kind of like, you know. Ah, you started with the notebook. The beginning for an idea. Okay. Yeah. So with those ones, it was like, you know, I had an idea where I wanted to talk about uh, cups, you know, Starbucks and Costa and all these throwaway cups, which um, at the time, like, it's funny how much has changed in, in just the last two years. But at the time, you would have been looked at like a dirty great hippie if you'd suggested <laughs> using your own cup. Yeah. Whereas now that's changed. It wasn't like that. So I would say, here's the one line I've thought of. And then he would kind of hit back at me. Oh, yeah. What about? And then like that developed into me saying, um, oh, it's weird that the, you know, these cups are this. And then him going, yeah, you know, you get 5p off if you bring your own cup, but wouldn't it be better to punish people that don't bring? Yes. What's the equivalent of that? Like me going into court and going, I haven't murdered anyone today. So I get five pounds rather than punishing the people who have murdered. So then you, you take this thing and you find the joke format, you inflate it to ridiculous mm. and you find the way it's not what it actually is. Does it seem funny so to I you started, at the time when you're doing it? At, at the time with that particular information? Like, no, yeah. no, I was, it was too raw for me at the time. But then as I moved on with the show and I wrote more on babies and my personal feelings, the way I wrote that more often than not was to write prose. So I keep an online blog of just bits and pieces and if I just feel a bit creatively stuck I'll just go I'm gonna write on this subject and I'll try and churn out 250 words and shape it and tidy it just for a bit of mental exercise and got it so I'd write I'd write out a big long prose bit and then if I felt like I'd got to the end of it and I I instinctively felt this is juicy this has got something this is interesting then I would uh print it out or put it into a new document and break it down into one line sentences and find a way to structure each line of the narrative so that something about it would make you laugh. And that's how I changed it from prose to stand up. That's brilliant. That's how you do it. I never knew. That's how I did it. <laughs> I didn't know. That's how you make the soup. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because in stand-up, especially in, in the UK, in the club circuit, you're probably looking at needing a punchline every 
every 20 to 30 seconds for the first five minutes because you've got to really prove that you're funny and bed in. And then if you're in a big bit, you can maybe stretch that to every 40 seconds to a minute. But those punchlines, you can't have four minutes of explanation for one laugh. That's cheating. You're only up there for 20 minutes. You'll only get four laughs. So yeah. it was, you You kind of have to, and you realize with prose that the sentence structure often changes. So with stand up, the very last word you say needs to be the thing that elicits the noise from the audience. If you've still got more sentence to say, you're either going to tramp down their laughter or you're going to lose the rhythm and it won't be clear when to laugh. So you, you kind of have to sit there and stare at it. And it's like a little jigsaw puzzle of reworking the sentence. So the, the funny word is the last one. Hmm. Wow. That's, it's amazing. I am always impressed the older that I get the how much I don't know about how <laughs> things work. And, and, and I'm fascinated with stuff like this. Yeah. I want to um, kind of loop back to talking a little bit more about <clears throat> anxiety and depression. And, you know, it, it affects millions and millions of people around the world. And it seems that as more treatment options become available and acceptable, it seems like we're even hearing about it more and more and more. And I think it's in large part um, due to people like yourself, you know, entertainers and people in the public eye who are really willing to put it out there. And I kind of, do you consider it kind of a mission to use your talent to destigmatize anxiety and depression? Do you think of it in terms of of providing service? I don't, but only because if I ever felt like I couldn't do it anymore, I won't make myself feel guilty for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I I do talk about it now because I can, mm -hmm. and because as a person and a woman and a comedian I've got to a point where I'm not going to lose anything by not by talking about it now mm -hmm. um and I found a way to do it safely for myself um but That's if I of... turned around tomorrow and went I can't talk about this anymore that's for me again now and it's not for the world then I think I'd be okay with myself making that decision. Well, especially since it's, you know, streaming on online, you're kind of in this privileged situation where you could decide you're done talking about it. And then those people out there that still need what you have to offer, it's out there. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. think, I think, I'm so glad that, that there is that more awareness of it and people are talking about it. And and I think there's so much since I did start talking about it that I just hadn't really known other people would connect to so much. So one of the big things that I've really tried to champion a bit is the idea that you you pick your own rock bottom, that there's mm -hmm. no comparative nature of depression for yourself like sure when you go and get analyzed by the doctor they'll give you a one to ten of how sad do you feel about these things but mm -hmm. if you are not okay then 
you know that you're not okay. You don't have to be looking at portrayals of depression in film and television and going, oh, well, I'm not drinking whiskey out the bottle, staring at rain running down a window. I'm picking my kids <laughs> up from school and <laughs> I haven't dropped the ball, so I must be okay. Yeah. No, if you're not and you know you're not, then that's okay. Like everybody's got their own way of you know, realizing that I just, I think for the longest time, I didn't get any help because I'm not destructive. So I hadn't destroyed Mm. my life. So I assumed it wasn't that bad. And I'd like there to be a, which is getting there now with mental health of this thing of going, we're all there with it somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have an opinion about why so many people these days are facing mental health challenges. I mean, it's always been with us and we're probably not facing anything new, but it does seem like a very pervasive thing these days. <coughs> um, yes, I have two thoughts on that. Firstly, I think it's that we have so much information flying into our brains these days. Pretty much every human being is walking around with a little rectangle in their pocket that is mm-hmm. constantly pumping out things that wake your brain up. Mm-hmm. Information, ideas, people's comments, <clears throat> light, new words. Your brain is constantly getting stuff. Yeah, That's one thing I think that makes this over-anxious feeling kick off. The other thing I think is that actually, I mean, I don't know, it's just a vague opinion here, but... Is Has anything changed or are people just dealing with this now and calling it mental health stuff instead of just being the stoic guy down the pub who hits his wife when he gets home? Yeah. yeah. Are we, or are the we talking about one. it instead of killing ourselves? Yeah. yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, And I, I don't do. mean to sound glib about that. I just, I mean, people go, everybody's got mental health issues these days. Oh, why has everybody gone sappy? And you go, no, we haven't got sappy at all. Everybody's always had all of these mental health issues. We just hid them and they came out in some really foul things before. Yeah. I'd rather live in a world where everybody's got a therapist and everybody's a bit, you know, a, a bit hippie or whatever mm-hmm. you'd mm-hmm. want to call it than a world where we keep it behind closed doors and then people grow up and live with d- disgusting behavior because there aren't outlets for it. Yeah. Yeah. I I think you're right. I think on both of those counts that, you know, the amount of change that our lives are going through because of, you know, the electronic revolution or the technical revolution, whatever it is, I I think that perhaps the people that are alive in the world today haven't quite caught up to it or adapted to it and it's screwing with us. And I also think that you're right there. I mean, it's always, there's always been the melancholy one in the village or, you know, there's always been the person and there's, there have always been women who have been dissatisfied to their lives and felt trapped to the point where, you know, it, it impacted them drastically, not just women, men and women. And I think we might be seeing a lot of that these days. I'm so grateful for antidepressants and I'm so grateful (laughs) that it isn't, um, unusual or as stigmatized anymore for people to say, hey, I I deal with it too. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. I always I struggle with it when people say these days. Anything where somebody adds the phrase these days and, and they talk about the past as if 
you know, mental health has just appeared from somewhere. Yeah. And and I sort of think, what are you talking about? <laughs> Which decade of the last century do you think wasn't screwing with people's brains? Do you not think that the world wars or Vietnam or the 80s, like technological boom or the drug you know, changes on music or like, you know, culture, everything has always been changing at 100 miles an hour for, for at least the last 150 years. Yeah. And that has always been screwing with us. So the idea yeah. that antidepressants and mental health, you know, is is new and there's something weak about people now that's not coping with it, I think is is a sort of odd trying to grasp a past that hasn't actually existed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that part of the beauty, you know, the the flip side of that triangle in, or that rectangle in your pocket is that we can communicate in real time. More and more people around the world can, you know, let people know we're not alone. There's yeah. a lot there's a lot of us out there. There's a lot Absolutely. of Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I have yeah. such a love-hate relationship with technology. I think technology is fantastic and I'm in complete phone addict mm -hmm. um but at the same time I think that it is very unsettling for me as somebody that likes to have neat edges on things and mm -hmm. tick things off and have things done mm -hmm. that I can't get to the end of the day and just go and I'm done with the outside world I am in my safe lovely home now yeah you know I can invite tragedies across the world onto my pillow by opening Twitter while I'm lying in bed looking at my phone and then suddenly my bed isn't as secure and nice and cozy anymore yeah. and I don't I'm not advocating ignorance but you have to sort of try and learn for yourself what your boundaries are in terms yeah. of helpfulness yeah yeah I know that um I I'm pretty sensitive nowadays that I am intentionally focusing on how much time social I spend in social media. I mean, you yeah. have to use it for work purposes. It is how we get our information and how we communicate. But I'm aware now that, ah, you know what? I don't like that edge, that feeling. I don't like the way yeah. I feel. If I've been scrolling a little while, I know it because I'm starting to feel, I don't like this. This doesn't feel yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. Um, I do simple things with mine. I don't have the apps for social media on my phone. So if I want to look at any of them, I go into internet browser and I log out every time I finished so that every time I just idly open that thing up and go to use it again, I have to put my username and password in. And it reminds me every time I have to have that split second of going, do I actually want to be doing this or am I doing it out of reflex? Right. And it's quite interesting in helping myself yeah. uh, be good to myself. <laughs> yes. Yes. Otherwise, it's so easy to let the world in. And and then you realize that actually all of the bad stuff that is happening out in the world isn't actually happening to you right this second. Mm. You know, And I can't help. There's yeah. only so much I can do. Right. I can donate to these things and I can spread awareness of some things, but I cannot fix everything. Right. Right. Yeah. It's good to have perspective, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so hard to hold on to that. I know it. I know it. Why can't we just nail it down? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then we would be fabulous at every moment of every time and no one would like us then. <laughs> We'd like ourselves, though. Would we like ourselves? I don't uh, know. I kind of like my dark spots and my rough spots a little bit, too. You know, I wouldn't want to erase all that. It makes – it's part of the fabric, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
So we're getting to the point where we got to wrap things up. And I just want to ask you my three last questions. Okay. And I think we've already discussed this next one quite a bit, but you know, feminism, big part of your life work in comedy. At what point in your life did it become relevant to you? Uh, early twenties, um, Catlin Moran's book came out, um, was it how to be a woman? Mm -hmm. She, she had a book about feminism and it, it made me stop being one of those people that was like, I'm a guy's girl. Ah, oh, why do women have to make a fuss? And it legitimized things that were difficult that I'd always tried to just shut up about because I was in such a male dominated environment and I didn't want to make a fuss. Yeah. And I learned <clears throat> from her and from that movement how to make a fuss without being horrible about it and I liked that and ever since then I'm a fully paid up member <laughs> all right next question how would you fill in the blank nobody ever told me that oh hard one huh mm. Nobody ever told me that the thing that made me happy would keep changing. Oh. That I can't aim for one thing, get it, and be happy. I need to just keep going with the flow that that thing's going to keep switching up and changing on me and therefore to not set my sights too obliviously on one thing. Oh, that is such a good answer. Huh. I like that so much. <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that today. So my last question is this, where are you in the big wide world of motherhood? And answer that any way you want, you know, in terms of your mother or whatever you want. I am, I am a mother in the wings. Mm. I am a mom in my head. I just haven't found my baby yet. Mm, what a thoughtful way to put it. Well, <laughs> this has been a lovely conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I appreciate you coming on and sharing so much with us. Where where should everybody find out more about you? Um, best places are I have a website, uh, lauralex.co.uk, and then I'm on all the social medias. Of course, I am. I'm on uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Laura Lex. Uh, Lex is L E X X. Got it. Thank you, Laura. I hope we thank get to, you. Yeah, I hope we get to talk again down the road. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, bye bye. Thanks, everybody. That's it for this week. Go check out Laura Lex's website to learn more. And as always, you can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. That's J-E-A-N-N-E Faulkner, F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R.com. 
You can email me, Jean at Jean Faulkner. You can find me on Twitter, at Jean Faulkner. We're on Instagram, Common Sense Pregnancy. We're over on Facebook. We're all over the place. Just get a hold of us. Ask us your questions. And don't forget to visit the website and our shop tab and our Patreon page. And send us all your support, folks. We'll talk again next week. And thanks for joining the conversation. Bye-bye. Hey guys, we're Sarah and Matthew Bivens, hosts of the Doing It At Home podcast, a show dedicated to empowering stories and resources around home birth. Our mission is to normalize home birth and encourage mamas and families to be educated, supported, and empowered by their birth choices, whatever they are. You can find the podcast in Apple, Google, Stitcher, the Pod Network, and on our website, diahpodcast.com.